And so far with every episode of Real Deep Dive that I've recorded so far, uh, we've followed a sort of template. Basically, I do an introduction, I go over the plot points, and then I draft a syllabus over which talking points I'd like to go over with the guest at some point. In this instance, however, things are going a little differently. I thought it would keep things interesting if for the first episode with a certain guest, I would pick the film and then go into that. And then for the second episode, the guest would pick the film. And Rachel was keen enough to do Citizen Kane that she has come back and she has chosen Satoshi Kone's Perfect Blue. Uh, she has written uh, the, the syllabus that's going to follow. And uh, for most of the episode, I think I'm just going to have her take the wheel and uh, guide us through this. So uh, Rachel's going to come in, maybe give you an opening salvo, and then give you a plot film, and then I'll come back in once she's, uh, once she's ready to go. Well, thank you for having me back. I've been really looking forward to just talking about one of my all-time favorite movies, Asatoshi Kon's 1997 um, animated, which is also a very important fact to remember when talking about Perfect Blue. Perfect Blue is a story about an idol singer in Japan named Mima Kirigo, who wants to become an actress. However, her manager, Rumi, is not a huge fan of the idea, and her other manager, uh, Tadokoro, is a huge fan. But Mima gets a job on a kind of a sketchy, not-so-great, like, crime show where the writer is writing it by the seat of his pants, and weird things start to happen. It looks like Mima has a stalker. And then things only get worse as Mima starts to lose her sense of reality, including seeing a doppelganger of herself, reflections of herself that talk to her, and then just generally losing track of what is actually happening to her versus what's going on in her head and reality and also the movie. In the end, uh, Mima realizes that her manager, Rumi, is her actually her stalker and believes that she is the real Mima, a like delusion that is manifesting as a doppelganger, which Mima sees, although the audience doesn't really quite see it the way Mima does. All right, and uh, the film ends with, with uh, Rumi being physically overcome by her. Uh, she's institutionalized and uh, Mima sort of regains a sense of ide uh, personal identity and autonomy. Yeah, I think one of the biggest twists about Perfect Blue is that it has a happy ending. Like my first time watching it uh, and I wasn't freaking out at how scary and intense the movie is. I was like, there's no way this is going to have a happy ending. It's still a satisfying ending, which I think we will talk about more later. And uh, I wanted to point out that while you were in college, you um, wrote uh, a term paper about, about this novel, I mean, about this film, and then shared it with me right before we started this episode. Oh, yes. Uh, my senior thesis paper was about Perfect Blue. Uh, I took a, my senior, my senior seminar class was about environmental criticism and eco criticism i decided to write about perfect blue and how it how it relates to um space place and non-place terms that um are used often by lawrence buell in his book the future of environmental criticism uh space it is a place that has meaning like a house uh, places location like a grocery store and non-place which is the most interesting is um, transitory and temporary meanings ascribed to places, which I think is a huge element of Perfect Blue. 
because while there are a lot of locations, most of them have a meaning making them spaces, but most of them turn into non-place because they, well, the meaning changes constantly. Like what is a set becomes a room. Nima's room, which we will talk about later, is definitely a all three space, place, and non-place. All right, so your uh, the, the definition of the term you used isn't necessarily related to like ecological concerns like uh, climate change. It's basically the environment in terms of the background, the mizzen scene. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that my professor wanted us to write about the environment like as an environmental issues, but nobody did. Like, And nobody wrote anything about classic literature. Like literally someone in my class wrote her paper about Brokeback Mountain and somebody else wrote hers about Breaking Bad. The mid-2000s, everybody. Hey, 2010s. I'm not that old. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that does touch upon something that uh, I wanted to bring up. Mm-hmm. Um, just the idea of how the director and the cinematographer in Perfect Blue is an unreliable narrator of sorts. Mm-hmm. Very early on, Cohn wants to establish that you can't necessarily trust the things that you're seeing. Not only is the film not in chronological order, which forces the viewer to sort of think about what's going on more, there are a lot of fake-outs. Yeah, later on you want to discuss the uh, rape scene in Double Bind, the um, mm-hmm. the not very good film noir the uh, type of story that yeah, Meme is acting in. Yeah, it's basically like, we're going to make a version of... Silence of the Lambs, but we're just going to hype up all of the problematic elements that were in Silence of the Lambs. Uh, yeah, when that when that uh, rape scene first comes up, it's sort of just presented to, um, uh, to the viewer without any indication that it's part of a movie within a movie. And you just sort of see it happening as is until the director yells cut and you're like, oh, she's in a movie. Great scene in Double Bind, the movie show Mima is in, is that this is presented to her as being an important moment in her film career. Like they reference other actresses, like Jodie Foster, funnily enough, um, being in movies where a rape scene was required for the story. Whether it's really necessary or not, arguably the in-universe rape scene is really unnecessary to double bind, especially as the audience learns how the in-universe TV show chooses to, you know, resolve itself. And Mima does it because she wants to be taken seriously, but I don't think she really understands that even if it is, you know, make-believe, there's a huge mental toll upon her and also her friends, you know, her managers who have to watch this. Yeah, uh, getting back to the idea of sowing doubt into the viewer, um, mm-hmm. that's probably the most visceral aspect of it. But it's brought up throughout the film in a lot of uh, a lot of ways, both uh, subtle and overt. And um, you know, the moment that um, you know realizes that she isn't, you know, going nuts, and that her manager is literally impersonating her. <laughs> yeah. Um, up until then, whenever the doppelganger shows up. It looks like Mima, mm-hmm. but um, once she figures it out after noticing that the reconstructed bedroom has too oh. many fish in the tank. That is the creepiest scene. We have to talk about the fish. So after Mima feels, so the rape scene at the beginning of the story, 
she returns home to her apartment, which there are lots and lots of establishing shots of just how cute and small it is. She essentially lives in just a room, small Japanese apartment. And she realizes that some of her beloved um, tetra fish, who are blue and red, very cute fish, have died. And this is a heartbreaking moment leading to her breakdown. And for the rest of the movie, when we see the fish tank, we just see the like two or three fish that are left in it. But when Rumi, still believing, Mima still believing that she is kind-hearted and wants to help her, Mima looks into the fish tank in her supposed bedroom and realizes that there are way too many fishes in the tank. And thus she is not actually in her own room, even though it looks exactly like it. So the fish both represent the uncanny. It is both familiar to her and yet unknown because the fishies. <laughs> and at that moment, the doppelganger is depicted as Rumi, a middle-aged um, Japanese woman who is not in great shape, wearing yeah. the J-pop uh, clothes. Up until then, she had been depicted as basically a clone. Yeah, but sometimes the doppelganger is clearly just something that she sees in her head. But sometimes it is physical. It's one of those things that I think you Perfect Blue has a really, really high rewatch value because you can watch the same scenes over and over again and it'll start to come even more clear to you. But also sometimes you're going to end up being like, wow, what is happening? Whose perspective are we seeing from? There's um, one scene late in the film where you're suddenly presented with the idea that Mima's life story, as it has been presented to you, is a fab is a fabrication. It goes all staying elsewhere on you that you've been watching a story, and then it's it like resets itself back to reality or a reality. And there's also another sequence that I wrote about um, in my senior thesis paper about how. Mima seems to relive the same day over and over again, and it, the, it's marked by hearing someone say, take one, take two, take three, at the end of every cycle, and it begins with the same newscast on the radio to really enforce the idea that either she is really repeating the same day, or there is a level of confusion over what's going on on a day-to-day -day basis. There isn't any time travel or anything like that in Perfect Blue, which I think is honestly a good thing because it really leaves it up to the audience to decide how much is in the character's head or are we just being presented with false information. You know, I keep circling back to that, the the idea that Cohn wants us to not trust the narrator mm -hmm. um, and he's actively screwing with our perceptions and wants us to know that. This is something he used in a lot of his later work, uh, most notably Paprika, which was my first exposure to him. I mean, in that one, you know, you're literally going into dream worlds and there's a scene where, you know, one of the characters is talking about how a director can use film vocabulary in order to trick the audience. Like at that point, it's not even subtle anymore. Anymore. Honestly, I, I personally thought that Paprika was far more confusing than Perfect Blue, but that's just me. And I've also, in my defense, I have only watched Paprika once. Need to watch it again. Perfect Blue, I have literally lost track of how many times I've watched it or made people watch it with me. Yeah, I don't, I don't want to like delve too much into Cone's other films because mm -hmm. this is supposed to be about just Perfect Blue, but the stuff that we've been talking about, it is a motif that keeps popping up in his work. So, I also wanted to talk about, so I think the biggest question 
when it comes to looking and examining perfect blue and one that was the backbone to my senior seminar paper is that is perfect blue a feminist story? There's been um, great conversation lately about horror as a genre that can be quite feminist. Yes, it's a lot of famous movies about women in danger, but a lot of women enjoy watching the woman in danger triumph over, you know, some element of or manifestation of the patriarchy. I mean, just look at how popular Midsummer is or us, or if we go way back to, you know, Alien, or heck, even the ending of, uh, oh, I lost my train of thought, at least, at least sometimes the ending of uh, Psycho, because Marion's sister steps up to try to figure out what happened to her, even though I really would not consider it a Psycho, a feminist horror movie at all. But I personally believe that Perfect Blue is a feminist story, even if maybe the director didn't go out, um, you know, out of his way to really enforce that. But it is a story about Mima trying to take control of her own life and her own expectations about what her future is going to be like, despite everyone in the movie wanting to control or influence her in some way, especially with the expectation that she's always going to stay as this pure and perfect person, this perfect, you know, idol singer, but she wants to be a, a serious actress. And that seriousness, other people seem to, in the movie, seem to act like that's an excuse to hurt her. I, I do think that at the heart, uh, the film is about a uh, woman who is trying to retake control over her life. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it is not difficult to spin that to a fe uh, feminist narrative. Whether it's intentioned or not by the filmmakers is something that's interesting to talk about. But I am of the mindset that once an artist steps away from their work, it in some ways doesn't belong to them anymore and that the uh that the audience is the last collaborator and they're going to put their own uh their own viewpoint and their own perspective onto it yeah that's death of the author for all of you uh, english majors like me <laughs> yeah i i didn't want to use that literal term but yeah usually i steer towards death of the author although i don't want to ignore it entirely i do think authorial intent is at least interesting to talk about when contextualizing when the work came out and all that oh yeah Certainly. I mean, we don't have, we're probably not going to have the time to really go into it, but I would definitely advise listeners to research into the culture in Japan around idol singers and why that's, you know, not the world's greatest thing and why that adds pressure on Mima and also later on Rumi because Rumi was not a successful idol, idol singer, a field that prizes, you know, youth and beauty more so than I think than talent because Rumi she wasn't very talented and her beauty went away as she aged but yeah. Mima has beauty and talent and youth but she wants to have control over how those things are used yeah Rumi kind of looks like uh the overzealous fan who killed Selena oh oh my god yeah you're right she is. Oh, poor Selena. I don't think that was on purpose. No, but... I don't think it was on purpose at all. I mean, no, but oh, poor Selena. I, I don't know. The one the one character we haven't actually talked about yet that we should is me mania. Oh, yeah. There's an actual stalker. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, more so than Rumi is. He's just an extension. So me mania, basically think of the nasty, you know, otaku guy you went to high school with, 
but make him nuttier and creepier and you have me mania <laughs> yeah that does kind of, I, I do think me mania um symbolizes a lot of something that i found in the subtext of perfect blue is just mm -hmm. how um fame sort of has a dehumanizing effect mm -hmm. because you know uh we all have famous people that we admire and we don't know them and we can't know them in most instances and we sort of project things onto them and you know for most people that's sort of healthy but it does um elevate the person and simultaneously isolate them they parents are into a commodity yeah yeah <laughs> the uh the the artist and celebrity is object and yeah. Uh, there are a lot of things that became more prevalent in the decades since Perfect Blue's 1997 release. Um, mm -hmm. You know, Instagram influencers, reality TV show hosts, lots of people who were famous for not really a specific reason. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and you brought up a, a good point when it comes to like, social media. Um, when Perfect Blue came out, the internet was, you know, as we know it today, it was in its baby stage. Mima gets a desktop computer, and this allows her to keep track of the stalker run, although she kind of knows that it's run by someone who's not her, but knows her very well, a website diary called Mima's Room. And it's, to us, the viewers, we know that it's fake, but it starts to sound like Mima enough that it begins to help destabilize her, you know, mental ability. But... People not who are not Mima take what's written on the blog seriously. But if this came out, let's say, in 2017 instead of 1997, Mima Kirigoa would probably just have an Instagram or a Twitter so she could immediately correct it. It might make it easier to fake by to steal details, but it would be her speaking directly to the viewer or the, her fans. And I do think it's interesting that even in baby internet, we mm -hmm. still have this idea of the uh, celebrity as a brand. Oh, and yeah, uh, yeah we, we live in an era uh, where if anyone is extremely online, they are a brand, whether they're famous or not. Yeah. And Mima, she's popular, but she isn't like a huge star studded celebrity. She wants to be taken seriously. People know who she is. I'm trying to, I don't really, I think the best, I guess, example to, to kind of translate what Idol Singer is, Mima would be like a Disney Channel star who's trying to be taken seriously as an actor. Yeah, and I'm assuming not like Miley Cyrus. Um, no. Like, like someone who was on the show that was on after uh, Hannah Montana. Yeah, I, I think probably Mima wants, instead of like going from like, you know, Hannah Montana to Miley Cyrus and Wrecking Ball is that Mima's a Disney Channel star who wants to be a serious actor on serious things. Like, Mima doesn't want to be on, you know, double bind. She's there because she has the expectation that she's going to pay her dues and it's going to lead to bigger and better things. Yeah, I want to cycle back uh, mm -hmm. to, um, you brought up uh, you brought up Hitchcock and, yes. you know, debating whether or not Perfect Blue is a feminist film. Yeah. Uh, after going over um, <laughs> a lot of criticism about Perfect Blue, I found that there were more than a few comparisons to Hitchcock films, uh, particularly Vertigo oh, and Dial yes. M for Murder. And mm -hmm. there is a sort of undercurrent to it where, you know, an individual is being gaslit and mm -hmm. um, the director is kind of trying to trick you into questioning whether or not the person is insane. So the director is gaslighting you as well. 
Uh, on the other hand, I do think there are a lot of interesting parallels between Perfect Blue and what Hitchcock did in real life to cer certain of his um, mm -hmm. female actors like Tippi Hedren. Oh yeah, Tippi Hedren is still alive and when you know, Me Too was starting to cycle around the news, she brought up her story about Hitchcock. You know, it's good for Tippi Hedren outliving the man. <laughs> yeah, I do think the Hitchcock uh, comparisons are kind of overcome when uh, Mima actually does something and is able to overcome the men and one woman who is able to con mm -hmm. who's attempting to control her life and pick her choices for her. Yeah, like at the end of the movie, she says, "I am who I am." Who is the real Mima? The real Mima is Mima. Yeah, not to her fans, not to Rumi. And the ending kind of does jump into the future and you see her as like an actual famous but respected actress. When she visits Rumi in the mental hospital, as she leaves, some of the nurses are like, Mima Kirigoy, what is she doing in here? So it's that level of surprise that you wouldn't expect the Mima Kirigoy to be slumming it at a mental hospital. Yeah, I don't think uh, Perfect Blue tells you that she's found, like, a true self, because there isn't one. Not really. We all present different faces to people. Uh, I don't talk to my mother the way I talk to my boss or my friend. Or yeah. Like, and I actually don't talk to Rachel on this podcast the way I talk to her in real life, because oh, yeah, I'm in a microphone, no and I'm, yeah. doing a, I'm doing a performance in a way. Yeah, I mean, I'm trying to, like, not go all over the place like <laughs> that being said, I do get to pick my identity and present it as I want in all of those circumstances. And at the end of the film, Mima is able to do that as well. Yeah. I think that's really what he was looking for. What other? Oh, definitely want to talk more about me mania, especially the scene in his bedroom when all of the posters that he has of Mima, which cover the walls, start. They all start talking and, and comforting. And, and that kind of goes back to Mima as the commodity that people can buy and control. There's also a scene in the movie where Mima takes nude photos that she wants to take, you know, good for her, um, by the kind of creepy photographer. I mean, he doesn't creep on Mima, but he's like, weirdly sweating and he looks like a fucked up anime version of benedict cumberbatch <laughs> and me mania buys all of the magazines of the nude photos so he can prevent them from being seen because mima is losing her purity me mania even rips one of the magazines away from a guy who presumably bought it yeah, that uh, yeah. Speaking of things that seem more pertinent a few decades after the film oh, came boy, out, yeah. <laughs> just the idea of we live in an era where everybody has a camera on their phone, mm -hmm. and and uh, <laughs> believe it or not, people, but uh, lots of lots of people today are going to take naked pictures of themselves that they might end up regretting later, or they might not uh, regret at all, but they might be in a position either in their career or politics, maybe where that nudity is then is used by opponents to try to take them down a peg. Yeah. I think Mima taking the nude photos with the photographer is her way of really shedding the idol singer identity permanently. Like you can't take that back that you know, everyone can see her, her boobs and her everything really. Um, Perfect Blue doesn't shy away from any of that. It came in like a wrecking ball. 
Yeah. <laughs> I'm very sorry. That's the second episode I did a terrible pun like that. Well, and I, and I will say that um, the version of Pretty Blue that I have is the unedited version. So there are scenes of, you know, meme pubes, which aren't in some of the other versions. <laughs> yeah. Getting back to, like, uh, production aspects yes. of this film. Yes. Uh, it was um, it was initially supposed to be live action. I can't even imagine what that would have been like. No, I feel like it has an extra like quality to it because it's animated. That everything that you are watching is constructed, so everything was put there with, I think, more purpose than there would be in a live action one. Also, some of the effects would look kind of wonky, especially during the end fight where hallucination. Rumi Mima is just literally bouncing from location to location. I think you couldn't have done that very easily with live action. So yeah, 1995 earthquake changed the course on that, which um, for the film's purpose is probably to its benefit. Oh yeah. It's based on a novel. It was written by, uh, forgive me, I'm going to butcher this, mm -hmm. Yoshikazu uh, uh, Takeuchi. Kone didn't especially like the novel. He only agreed to do the film because he, he was given permission to just radically alter it. I haven't read the novel. It wasn't translated. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't translated into English until 2017. Yeah, that's after I uh, <laughs> Yeah, however, based on the impressions I was able to glean from it, all of the stuff about alter perceptions and you can't trust what's going on and the unreliable narrator were added to Cone. Um... It seems like the initial novel was just a, a standard potboiler. A more faithful version of the book was uh, filmed in 2002, and that was live action. I haven't seen that one either. Yeah, I don't even know what it is. I think um, this is probably a good time to start talking about works that are derivative of Perfect Blue, the movie. Darren Aronofsky actually owns the rights to a live action version of Perfect Blue because he wanted to recreate this one scene where Mima in the middle of her breakdown is curled up in the bathtub holding her knees tight to her chest and she's screaming under the water and that exact scene was recreated by Jennifer Connelly for um god what's the name of the movie about the druggies I've never seen it uh, uh Requiem for a Dream yeah Requiem for a Dream yes so that's important, and then and it's recreated frame for frame. First, we're going to talk about Perfect Blue. We have to talk about Black Swan. <laughs> yeah, I've gone into this a bit myself. Mm -hmm. uh, I know that uh, Aronofsky um, he has claimed that he wasn't consciously thinking of Perfect Blue while oh, he was making on. Black Swan. <laughs> I, I I don't one hundred percent believe that. I think that Perfect Blue and Black Swan are like companion films. Then maybe they're not sisters, but they're definitely cousins who look a lot alike. To be fair, Aronofsky has met Cone, and um, Cone was apparently um, polite about it. That being said, Akira Kurosawa said very nice things about The Magnificent Seven without mentioning that it's a remake. So yeah. take of that what you will. Maybe, maybe he's just being nice. But I think that Black Swan more so than... Perfect Blue is about, you know, maybe not reclaiming your identity from other people, but just trying to figure out what your identity even is. Like, Mima versus Nina. God, their names sound too much alike. Nina doesn't know who she is at all. 
while Mima does have a sense of self that she is fighting to, you know, control or, or reclaim. Perfect Blue ends with, you know, Mima triumphantly saying, I'm the real Mima. Yeah, I'm the, I'm the real girl. Um, while Black Swan ends kind of ambiguously with Mima becoming herself, where she says, yes, I was perfect. Yeah, uh, personally, me being um, the type of nerd I am, mm -hmm. I think people are completely missing the point when they say that um, Black Swan is a knockoff of Perfect Blue, because mm -hmm. I think Black Swan is a knockoff of the Red Shoes. Which I have not seen, so this is why I'm trying to shine. <laughs> well, once again, I don't want to get too deeply into mm -hmm. other films that are not Perfect Blue, yeah. but... In a nutshell, The Red Shoes is about a ballet dancer who gets cast in a role in a ballet production of uh, Hans Christian Andersen's story, you know, The Red Shoes, mm -hmm. and she becomes so obsessed with making her performance as perfect as possible that she just sort of gets taken under psychologically by the needs of the, um, of the production, and also the film itself can be seen as a sort of a meta-textual, um, uh, meta-fictional uh, study of the source material that is being adapted, kind of a play within a play, which, as I'm describing it, Black Swan sounds like a remake of The Red Shoes. Not that I can't blame people for seeing parallels to Perfect Blue, especially since earlier in Requiem for a Dream, Aronofsky just borrowed. Yeah, just just did a cover version of one scene. He politely borrowed it. He got the copyright. Yeah, and I think that Black Swan takes you know, a lot of the really strong horror elements from Perfect Blue because Perfect Blue is definitely a horror movie. All of the scenes where you know Natalie Portman's walking around New York City. And she's seeing herself, and also the scene with the mirror with all the reflections that's still really creepy now. So I, I, they're definitely cousins who look a lot alike. They follow some of the similar beats, but they're still so different that they're really not remakes of the other one. Yeah, I don't want to. I don't want to knock on Black Swan, and you know, I think it's actually at least halfway plausible that Aronofsky wasn't consciously thinking of Perfect Blue, because mm -hmm. I mean, like I said, these motifs have been going on throughout film history over and over again. I brought up a film from the 1940s that you know both Perfect Blue and Black Swan have a number of parallels to. Yeah, nothing's original anymore. <laughs> uh, I mean, nothing original ever was. I do kind of think that the Hero with a Thousand Faces has a point. And I do think that all three of the films are able to find a personal variation of it that makes them compelling pieces of art in their own right. Yeah, and I think that the themes that are in Perfect Blue have only become, like, more wrong and more resonant. Well, like, I can't say that. <laughs> resonant. Yeah, resonant. Thank you. Resonant as time's gone by, especially um, with the idea of, you know, fans crazy stalkers of the people that they like. Uh, Ryan earlier brought up Selena, and I'm thinking of that poor singer who got murdered by a fan, Christina Grimmie. And we yeah. live in an area where the barriers between the content creator and the content consumer are a lot thinner than they ever were. Yeah, because pretty much anyone can make something and send it out into the world and have people be seize upon it immediately. And especially with, you know, discussions about people in Hollywood abusing their privilege over their, you know, inferiors, Perfect Blue 
it's a pretty good study about that. Although, you know, a lot of them don't have some crazy stalker who's going to start murdering them. Oh, God, I think the, the murder scene with the photographer is probably one of the most fucked up murder scenes in a horror <laughs> movie I've seen. It's animated, which I think makes it also kind of worse. I, I don't know. <laughs> There, there's a certain aspect of stylization and uh, to, to animation. Just, just the fact that this was very carefully fussed over, mm-hmm. and, oh, yeah. and you're thinking of that with every frame. Yeah. All right. Well, that covers just about everything I wanted to talk about. Were there uh, any other points you wanted to bring up? Mm-hmm. I think just one last little tiny point was that I think one of the elements that makes Perfect Blue so unsettling throughout the whole thing is. The music, which we have to thank, create um, composer Masahiro Aikumi. Yeah, I think I'm saying that correctly, and I, I apologize if I am mispronouncing it. But just any of Mima's themes, or especially Mimania's themes, is just really creepy. And I like to listen to movie soundtracks while I work, but there's no way I can listen to the soundtrack for Perfect Blue without just feeling bad. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, a lot of composers for films see their goal uh, to, um, you know, create something that adds to the intent of the narrative without drawing undue attention to itself, mm-hmm. which means that sometimes it can be really revealing to um, listen to film music divorced from, you know, the images it's trying to accompany. Oh, yes. Um, I just think you've like Midsummer again because it was probably my... Yeah, it definitely was my favorite movie from 2019, even though we are recording this now in 2020, um, is just the end of Midsummer when the house is burning and the music that's playing is so beautiful and kind of peaceful in a way. And, you know, you're watching all of these mostly innocent people getting burned alive, you know, the shitty boyfriend and the bear costume. And yeah. you get this gentle folk music on yeah. homemade instruments. Yeah, I mean, it's not quite, you know, folksy the same way uh, OG Wicker Man. So, yeah. Um, but back to Perfect Blue. If you have listened to this and have not seen Perfect Blue, I'm sorry that we spoiled the hell out of what's an interesting journey, but you should immediately go and watch it when you're done listening. And if you have hopefully seen Perfect Blue, watch it again. Hopefully you'll get something different and more out of it it's got layers it has layers i mean literally it has layers it's an animated movie although i would buy like a, a frame from perfect blue give, give me the gels i'll lose my mind <laughs> okay well if that's it i think this episode is in the bag uh thanks for listening everybody yeah thank you all right good night